Battle of Bosworth, fought on the 22nd of August, 1485, is regarded as one of the most important battles fought on English soil. You can read various accounts of the battle. There is a very informative and detailed one in Chris Skidmore's recent book, Bosworth. But almost every account of any battle seeks to describe in an orderly way a sequence of events which was rarely anything like orderly. Medieval battles, like most battles, were often complicated affairs. And Bosworth was a very complicated one. Why? Well, partly because of the unequal numbers of the two sides, but also because the role of several key participants remained shrouded in doubt until the battle itself unfolded. And even then, it was a real cliffhanger. Add to all that confusion the fact that our main sources of information, chroniclers, generally only understood warfare in broad brushstrokes. Chroniclers, like modern tabloid newspapers, were looking for a story, and thus concentrated on episodes of bravery or treachery. So as always, we must regard all accounts, if not with suspicion, then certainly with great care. Foremost in our minds must be this principle. We should not confuse actions with motives. As you will have gathered, the whole topic of the Wars of the Roses is frequently riddled with such confusion. My point is that even if we can piece together which participant did what and when, we cannot always be sure why they acted as they did. In this battle, there are several key moments when the motives are far from clear. Given that even the two main protagonists, Richard and Henry, were not entirely sure who was on their side, we can hardly be confident about it 530 years later. Well, you may say, surely it's obvious. Now, because we know who did, in the end, fight on each side, or did not fight at all. Yes, we do, but we don't always know why. Therefore, everything seems so much more clear-cut than it actually was at the time. Battles often turned on small incidents, local decisions made in haste, and of course, luck. Once the fighting started, neither Richard nor Henry could actually control the other players in the game. As we shall see, they could only control what they individually decided to do. So, with those provisos in mind, let's explore the battle. As we know, Wars of the Roses battlefields are sometimes a bit hard to pin down, and Bosworth has been no exception. The traditional site was Ambien Hill, near Market Bosworth, not far from Leicester. But, after much argument, and literally years of work by the Battlefields Trust, I think we can now be pretty certain that the centre of the battle was fought probably a mile or two to the southwest of Ambien Hill. Archaeological finds, especially a lot of cannon shot, have helped to pinpoint the location. Richard's army had mustered at Leicester, and it was from there that he rode out on the morning of the 21st of August. He must have looked pretty impressive, in full armour and wearing the crown on his head. Ceremony was important in the 15th century, and the image of Richard as king was designed to stiffen the resolve of his army. You will recall 
that Richard's army was much larger than Henry's, leaving aside the uncommitted Stanleys, and may well have amounted to some 15,000 men. He arrayed his forces on the higher ground on the slopes of Ambien Hill. But bear in mind that an army of that size would have covered several large open fields. Just consider how much space a hundred people take up, then multiply that by 150, and then add horses, cannons, supply train, etc. etc. Imagine trying to communicate with the various companies gathered there. A considerable amount of organisation was required just to ensure that the troops arrived anywhere near where they were supposed to be. Many of Richard's soldiers were also commoners, who were less well trained and therefore more difficult to control in the heat of battle. Oh, and once the cannons started firing, you could see precious little of the battlefield at all. Richard's vanguard was led by the experienced John Howard, Duke of Norfolk, and Sir Robert Brackenbury. Norfolk was a veteran of several campaigns and had actually fought for Edward IV at Barnet in 1471, ironically against the Earl of Oxford, who would be his direct opponent at Bosworth. Richard was in the centre of his army, behind the vanguard and surrounded by his hand-picked household knights. The rear guard, to his left, was commanded by Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, and though it is said that he had about 10,000 men, they were lagging behind the rest of the royal army. Below Richard's army, on the lower ground, near the river Sents, known as Reedmore at the time, was a green and marshy plain. It was through this unpromising lowland area that Henry's army advanced. The Stanley brothers, Thomas and William, positioned their forces in between the two main armies and to Henry's right and therefore Richard's left. Henry's speech to his troops on the day of the battle, according to the 16th century chronicler Edward Hall, included the following telling words. Backward we cannot fly, so that here we stand like sheep in a fold, between our enemies and doubtful friends. What did he mean? Well, earlier that morning, the 22nd of August, Henry had invited Thomas Stanley to join his army and lead the vanguard. Stanley declined, replying that he would join the battle when Henry's army was committed. Hence, the Stanleys were the doubtful friends he referred to. But could he rely upon the Stanleys' promises? Henry's position, as I've already hinted, was bad. The king had the high ground, the wind, and vastly superior numbers. Indeed, Henry's army was so small that instead of forming up into the traditional three medieval units or battles, as they were called, vanguard, main battle and rear guard, he could only form his army into one battle line, split into a left wing and a right wing. So without the Stanleys, Henry was massively outnumbered. Let's take a moment to consider Thomas Stanley's position in more depth. His son, Lord Strange, was still Richard's prisoner on the morning of the battle, and Thomas had no way of knowing what had happened to him. When Richard saw that Stanley's forces had not joined the royal army, he regarded it as clear evidence of treason, and was minded to execute his son on the spot. But Stanley had not yet actually committed himself. Instead, as I've said, he was midway between Henry's right flank 
and Richard's left, and could still play a decisive part in turning the battle either way. Now the Stanleys in general, and Thomas Stanley in particular, have taken a lot of stick about Bosworth, and a few other things too. Ricardians blame them for Richard's defeat, and Henry's supporters blame them for being lukewarm in their support. As always, I've tried to bring a modicum of common sense to all this nonsense. Let's be clear, the Stanleys intended to support Henry. Why else would they take such outrageous risks in keeping in touch with him and put in jeopardy their lives and legacies by angering the king? Of course, you could argue that the Stanleys were just showing Richard how vital their support was, but that would be a very dangerous game indeed. And why bother? Because Richard already knew how important they were. The king must have thought Stanley's defection was likely long before the battle, or he would not have taken the extraordinary step of holding Stanley's son and heir, Lord Strange, hostage. After that, does anyone seriously believe that Stanley and Richard could ever trust each other? So, all things being equal, Thomas Stanley would support his stepson Henry, and he told him so several times. But all things were not equal. The king's army was very large, and though the Stanley's forces were considerable, they had no intention of sacrificing themselves in a doomed cause. If Henry's army, this ragtag collection of Welshmen, Englishmen, Scotsmen and French, there has to be a joke in there somewhere, if Henry's motley army was able to stand against Richard, then the Stanleys would support him. But if Henry was quickly routed, then the Stanleys would fall back on Plan B. Plan B was Thomas Stanley telling the King that he was simply blocking Henry's road to London, and that he was always ready to join Richard in battle if needed. Well, it was true that the Stanleys were sitting next to Watling Street, which was the road to London. Whilst Richard would not have been amused by the explanation offered, there was little he could have done about it, since Stanley was still sitting at the head of a very considerable army. Of course, Stanley's policy may be seen as cynical, but he survived, as he had on several other previous and equally dodgy occasions. As I said of Northumberland, sometimes we have to get off our moral high ground and enter the real world of the 15th century, where royal favour brought land, power and wealth. A great family who ended up on the wrong side in a key battle would no longer be a great family. There was more to lose than just their lives. Add to that the fact that Richard simply did not inspire loyalty amongst many of his other subjects. It was not just the Stanleys who spent a while sitting on the fence at Bosworth. Some lords did not answer the king's summon at all. So to the battle itself, which began with the customary exchange of arrows, which proved inconclusive, followed by Richard's artillery. Now many folk don't realise that warfare in this period included plenty of cannons. The archaeological evidence alone proves that Richard had many cannons of varying size and range. They were even able to fire balls of lead packed with lead shot or pebbles, which of course were designed to maim or kill. Henry was therefore seriously outgunned, but under such heavy fire, his men seemed to cope surprisingly well. 
don't underestimate how terrifying such an artillery bombardment was for the participants. But in this respect, the small size of Henry's army actually helped. They massed on their left flank where the lie of the land shielded them a little from the worst effects of the cannon fire. We're told that it was the French mercenaries who had faced such fire before who gave them that handy tip. And of course, in the smoke of battle, the king's gunners would not have been able to see their targets very clearly. So the arrows came and went, and then the cannon shot came and went. Neither were in any way decisive, so it was time for cold steel. As Henry's army advanced, they passed a very marshy area on their right flank, which would make it difficult for Richard's forces to outflank them there. Remember that Henry's forces were concentrated on their left flank to avoid the cannon fire. So when they attacked, it was Richard's right flank which bore the brunt of their assault. In the absence of Thomas Stanley, the battlefield command of Henry's armies fell to John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, a very experienced and capable commander. Oxford was very much a man with a mission, in fact, several missions. Mission number one. You will recall that Oxford was a Lancastrian through and through. If he was a stick of rock, he would have had Lancaster written through him in red letters. He genuinely believed in Henry's cause. Mission number two. At Barnet in 1471, he had come so close to destroying the House of York, including the present King, Richard, then Duke of Gloucester. But in that fog of a battle, he had lost control of his troops, and while they were off celebrating, the battle was lost. Oxford was determined not to make the same mistake at Bosworth. Mission number three was a personal one. Oxford had lost his lands to the Yorkists, notably to Richard himself, but also to his rival for control of East Anglia, John Howard, Duke of Norfolk, against whom he was about to be pitted in battle. If I made it up, you wouldn't believe it. So for many reasons, Oxford was determined to use all his considerable military skill and experience to win this battle. The first action came when Oxford, leading a large number of Henry's men, as we have said, massed on his left flank, attacked Norfolk's position. The assault was full on, and Oxford's men pressed Norfolk back. But Oxford, anxious to prevent a repeat of Barnet, gave the order that no man should advance more than four feet in front of their battle standards, which might have been one of the few things any man was still able to see. After this order, the fighting ground to a halt, Oxford's men holding back, and Norfolk's wondering what the heck was going on. Further up the slope, King Richard would not have been able to see much, but one thing he did notice was that Thomas Stanley's banners were exactly where they had been since early that morning. Why, he wondered, had Stanley not helped out Norfolk by putting Henry's army under pressure on their right flank, which was very close to where he was? There was only one answer to that, and Richard, already half expecting it, knew now that he might have to win without Thomas Stanley's help. Though the battle on Henry's left had stalled, it was only just starting. Oxford might have paused, but he wasn't finished. Again, his men, still massed on Henry's left flank, attacked Norfolk. 
but at the same time, Oxford ordered another assault by a small force who would try to break through Richard's main battle line. Since he did not possess enough men for a broad frontal attack, Oxford could only spare a single column to drive at Richard's line. Their aim was to punch a hole in the royal line and cut King Richard off from Northumberland's rearguard. There is some suggestion that it was the Welshman of Rhys ap Thomas who made this charge, but we cannot be certain. The suggestion of the sources is that this concerted attack on Richard's lines coincided with Richard's decision to execute Lord Strange. Apparently, there was a bit of discussion in Richard's camp about whether they should execute him or not, but either way, we're not too sure what happened next, because somehow Lord Strange contrived to escape. And unless he had help from within Richard's ranks, it is difficult to understand how that could possibly happen. So Richard was unable to carry out his threat, which must have been extremely annoying. But then he had other things to worry about. Norfolk's vanguard were outmanoeuvred by Oxford and turned around. And because of the success of the other attack on Richard's line, Norfolk became isolated. Many of his men were killed and Norfolk perished too. Whether in the fighting or by summary battlefield execution, we don't know. What we do know is that Oxford wanted him dead. So the Royal Vanguard was destroyed with men fleeing the field. But the battle was by no means over. Oxford had used a large part of Henry's army in his attack, which meant that Henry himself had only a very small force as a rearguard. By contrast, Richard still had considerable men at his disposal, including those of the Earl of Northumberland. And of course, the two Stanley brothers had not yet committed any of their men to the fight one way or the other. The battle was finally poised.